you're sharing, whether you're giving away or you're picking up, you're sort of doing a good deed and you get that pat on the back from having done something that was simple, easy, fun, made someone else's day and also was just a good thing to do. Today's guest is Sasha Celestial One, who is taking a bite out of global food waste with Olio, the innovative community food sharing app that she co-founded with her friend Tessa Clark. Sasha grew up in rural Iowa to hippie entrepreneurial parents who taught her the value of innovation and the phrase one man's trash is another man's treasure. She spent the first part of her career rebelling against her hippie roots by working in business and banking at Morgan Stanley, McKinsey and American Express. But when Tessa told her about how her idea to start Olio and reinvent consumption seemed like the perfect opportunity to combine the values of her childhood and her business experience. Having grown fivefold over the past year, Olio now has 5 million users. It shared 34 million portions of food, taken 101 million car miles off the road, and saved 29,000 tonnes of CO2. It's just incredible. I have been so excited about this episode, so thank you so much for joining me, Sasha. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm good. That was a wonderful intro. Lovely to hear. When someone else sort of tees everything up, it sounds too good to be true. (laughs) We are so excited to welcome you on the podcast. But before we do, I'd love to ask you a series of quick fire questions to get us warmed up. Is that all right? Yep. What does the word community mean to you? To me, it's all about power to the people best thing that you've saved from landfill on Olio? I didn't save it myself, but I saw someone put on a cast set of their teeth and I thought, who is going to want that? And someone requested it. They were a teacher and they wanted it for World Book Day. So just goes to show you. Best advice you've ever received? The comparison is the thief of joy. I just, that quote really resonates with me whenever I find myself in any type of negative self-talk. If you weren't co-founder and COO of Olio, what would you be doing? I really, really enjoy working with early stage founders in that sort of just super exciting time. And I think I'd be working with female and underrepresented founders and those working to solve really important social and environmental challenges. What's the biggest success in your life so far? To be honest, I'd have to say our recent raising of the Series B, which is just catapulted Olio and my opportunity as a professional. I've never managed such a large team and we're only partially on our journey. It's really incredibly exciting. Finish this sentence. The future is determined by the choices we make today. To start off, I'd love to hear in your own words about the problem that Olio is addressing and the light bulb moment that you and your co-founder Tessa had when you founded the company in 2015? Sure. So we exist to put an end to the problem of waste in the home. Our heritage is with regard to food waste specifically, and I can touch on why that's so important to tackle, but also just waste more broadly. Households sort of across the globe send 2 billion tons of perfectly good stuff to landfill every year and using the Earth's resources at a rate that the Earth cannot replenish. And so it's simply unsustainable 
Food waste specifically is a particularly big problem. Nearly 40% of all the food produced globally does go to waste. Most of that food waste takes place in our own homes. And the problem is that because the food supply chain is such a big part of the global economy, that when a third or more of it goes to waste, it actually means that food waste, if it were a country, would be the third largest contributor to the climate crisis after China and the USA. So it accounts for four times as many emissions as the airline industry. It's nearly 10% basically of the problem. And so back in 2015, Tessa and I, we are both new mums. We had met at business school, but bonded quickly over our sort of shared passion and concern for the environment. And we really put our heads together and started thinking about how we could use our collective skills and experience to do something that was going to make the world a better place for our children. It was pretty cliched, if I'm honest. Lots of hormones going on. But whilst we were looking for a big problem to solve together, Tessa had an experience moving home. She was in Switzerland moving back to the UK. And on moving day, she had some non-perishable food items she had assumed she'd be able to pack. But the removal people said no, no food in the packing boxes. And she wasn't just going to throw the food away. So she's bundled up her two small children, uh, went out on the streets and tried to find someone to give the food to, which was embarrassing and it also didn't work. So she ended up smuggling the food in her packing boxes anyway. And we had sort of previously dismissed the idea of a neighbor-to-neighbor sort of food-sharing opportunity because neither of us waste food. And like it really didn't occur to us just how big of a problem was. And it was only then when we quickly learned what the true scale and also environmental impact of food waste is that we realized that this is a problem we wanted to spend the next six years solving. And that was back in 2015. Okay, so that's some really big numbers there. And you've also been quoted as saying that the average family throws away about 800 pounds of food every year that could have been eaten. And collectively, Mm -hmm. that adds up to 15 billion pounds a year. It's a horrible, horrifying statistic. And yet, people's habits are really hard to change. So what's the main motivation for your users? Is it that they feel that they're part of something bigger than themselves? That's a good question. I mean, when we survey new users, it's pretty unanimous that people join because they just hate waste. It just does not sit well with them. And that is something that is very human and you see it pretty much anywhere in the world. You know, our species did not evolve to throw away perfectly good resources. It's very counterintuitive. It goes against those hardwired evolutionary instincts. And conversely, it feels insanely good to give something of value to another human being, whether it's food or otherwise, because on the app we have people sharing food, but also you can share books, toys, clothing, plants, anything really that doesn't deserve to sort of die a slow death in landfill. And so stopping waste and not feeling bad and guilty about throwing away good stuff is the main motivator. But the reason people stay is because of the community. When you're sharing, whether you're giving away or you're picking up, you're sort of doing a good deed and you get that pat on the back from having done something that was simple, easy, fun, made someone else's day, and also was just a good thing to do. And I think those small rewards that we can build into our life on a regular basis really help to sort of improve overall one's quality of life. And so it's quite addictive, actually. Once people try it, our retention is really good. Yeah. And I love the language that you use on the app as well to, you know, food waste heroes, the people that are collecting the surplus food from businesses to your goals. What other methods do you use to encourage your users to share? Oh, goodness. I hope we haven't tried everything under the sun to get our users to share at this point, but sometimes it feels like it. But really the main 
motivator or the best thing we can do is for people to hear from someone else that they know that they've had a successful sharing experience. So we do make it very, very easy for people to spread the news to their friends and neighbors. And we've also grown through a grassroots volunteer program we call our Community Heroes. We have um, over, well, I was going to say over 77,000, but I'm sure it's 80,000 now different types of volunteers, and half of them are the community heroes who are spreading the word out in their community, handing out flyers, putting up posters, contacting local schools and community centers, and doing really old-fashioned community outreach and guerrilla marketing. And there's only so much I could spend on performance marketing without having that sort of authentic and individual neighbor within your own community, like who might live around the corner, is telling you about it. That's the best thing we can do to convince someone to give Oleo a go. And you recently raised $43 million Series B round. So huge, huge congratulations to you. What what are you actually going to do with all the funding? It's still totally surreal, if I'm honest, thinking about it, because we spent less than a fourth of what we raised in this last round in the first six years of Olio to get to where we are today. So we've been very lean and conservative with our cash, even though we've been VC-backed, et cetera. I think we were a bit early, so we were biding our time. And then COVID really was a massive catalyst, and we saw this huge growth that you alluded to earlier in the intro, which enabled us to go out and raise our Series B. And the answer to your question is that we're massively increasing the size of the team. Uh, We've pretty much doubled since we started fundraising earlier this summer. I had four new hires start yesterday. I've got another sort of three next week. It's been really full on. Of course, there's a lot of considerations around how to make sure that as we scale, we preserve our culture and the magic of, of working at Olio. So investment into people, specifically our tech and product teams, but also then we've got 10 international markets where we've seen really promising early traction, and we're going to properly launch those markets everywhere from Latin America to Singapore. Wow. And I've read that you've been far more successful pitching to female investors than men. You, I think you said your conversion rate with women is north of 70% compared to just 5 or 10% for male investors. So what advice have you got for other female entrepreneurs out there trying to secure funding? Up until very recently, we had an all-female board, more or less, which was quite exciting, although I did just send out around an email yesterday and realized that now Tess and I are the two female founders left on, on the board. But in the early days, especially when you're sort of at the idea stage or just at the sort of proof of concept stage, it really was true that our vision spoke to women who, for reasons rightly or wrongly, tend to have just more control and ownership over the household sort of fridge and the household shopping and are much more acutely aware of the problem that we are trying to solve versus their male counterparts who might have outsourced that either to housekeepers or to cleaners or to their wives or whatnot. It was a bit shocking in the beginning. But I guess my advice to others, I guess you just got to get in front of the right investors. Like, I'm not sure what more I can say than seek out female founders. If you have a product or service that is uniquely targeting a traditional female problem, then if you can find someone who can relate to that problem, you're just going to have a higher success rate in terms of getting them to engage with you. And in general, I think, taking a step back, I would imagine that to any investor, you would want to actively seek out a diverse number of investments, not just for diversity for diversity's sake, but because that just makes good business sense. Like portfolio diversification is sort of investment 101. And if you look at your portfolio companies and they all look the same, talk the same and dress the same, you're probably missing out on some really awesome opportunities. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Now, you've said in past interviews that you've always been a micro entrepreneur. And I wanted to touch on your previous company, MyCresh, which was London's first pay-as-you-go provider offering flexible childcare for busy parents. What sort of lessons do you think it taught you that helped you with your approach today? Well, first, it taught me that I want to be an entrepreneur. And that was immediate, like within, not minutes, it's an exaggeration, but I felt at home and obsessively compelled to pour my heart and soul into getting that business up and running and providing a valuable service to our customers, the parents within my own immediate community. I think it also initiated me into what is the inevitable roller coaster of being an entrepreneur. Like, it just doesn't matter where you are. The highs are the highs and the lows are the lows. And they come with such predictability that you do learn to like not let yourself emotionally get dragged along that that journey. And so I sort of, I guess, am grateful that with less at stake, I learned to feel comfortable with the highs and the lows of being an entrepreneur. Now, it's easier than ever to get groceries delivered to your door. So you can order most things and get it even on the same day now. Do you feel that what you're doing is countering this trend? And how important is a slower way of consuming to you? We raised $43 million. That's fantastic. But $2 billion has gone into the rapid delivery grocery space, I think, within the last 12 months, which, I don't know, where I am, you can press a button and get groceries in five or six minutes, which is... Part of me thinks that it's completely like excessive and goes against a lot of things that I value and that Olio does indeed stand for. On the other hand, I think what we have to do as a company is to figure out how to ride on the coattails of that growth. So we've been looking at it as an opportunity and we're partnering with pretty much all of the rapid delivery companies as clients. So they pay us for the service we provide, which is to rescue and redistribute the surplus food that they're generating at their dark warehouses. And because they're all fast-growing young companies, it's a lot of surplus food. It's great that they're taking steps from the beginning to be sustainable, and we can be part of that journey. And on the back of that, we've actually got lots of pilots lined up in international markets faster than we would have had otherwise. So that will help us get into new markets. But ultimately, I don't think that instant delivery of everything we need is the way collectively for us to start thinking about living a more sustainable, collectively as a society, be more sustainable. But that said, if you ever look on Olio and you try and snap up some of the free food from Selfridges or Tesco or Pret, right when it's been listed, you can see that it goes within seconds, like literally seconds. And so in some ways, people are experiencing instant satisfaction using Olio as well, because you can get access to food pretty much immediately. So, I just wanted to pick up on some of the partnerships. And I saw that you recently partnered with Tesco's to deliver meals to communities that otherwise would have been wasted. How did that one come about? And what sort of impact has it had? We just had our one year anniversary and the first year, 5 million meals were redistributed through Olio which is fantastic. That brings incredible value to our community and saves all of that precious food from going to waste. I mean, we've had our eyes firmly fixed on Tesco since 2017 when they became the first grocer to commit to having zero edible store waste, a journey for which I give have only the highest respect, if I'm honest, because they're the only supermarket that is fully committed to and invested in that journey. And they are by far and away the most ambitious in terms of the sustainability goals with regard to food waste. So we actually did our first pilot with them all the way back in 2017. It's been a long conversation. Sales cycles with large enterprise size stores or clients, unfortunately, can be really long. But now that we've scaled nationally with Tesco, we've got many thousands of volunteers collecting every single week from over 2,000 stores 
it's an insane amount of food that's being rescued that has really accelerated and fast-tracked conversations with other retailers. So it was worth the wait, and I don't think it'll be nearly as long until other supermarkets are right behind them. Now, for the second part of our conversation, I'd like to talk about what's helped shape you to become the entrepreneur that you are today. So I want to go right back to your upbringing in Iowa and the parents that you describe as hippies. And I'd love to hear about your surname, Celestia Wan, for a start. Yeah, so my parents were and still are hardcore hippies, and they made up my last name. They saw an advertisement for Celestial Seasonings Tea on the back of a magazine and thought that sounded nice. And so sort of just morphed it into something unique to me and put it on my birth certificate. And all my brothers and sisters have their own individual made-up names. But I had a very untraditional childhood. I was raised as a vegetarian. Until the COVID vaccine, I'd never been vaccinated. Lots of things that you might sort of think of as sort of stereotypical hippie-like things were a firm part of my childhood. And I was also the oldest of six children. And my parents separated when I was in primary school. So I had quite a lot of responsibility to support my mother, but it also made me grow up pretty quickly. Yeah, and your mother was very entrepreneurial, wasn't she? So what sort of things did she do and what sort of lessons do you take from that time that you've brought into earlier? I mean, both my parents were really, they started a wholesale cooperative natural foods product company when I was pretty much around the time I was born, which went on to become very successful, but that really wasn't until I was later in my teenage years. And in the meantime, my mom especially had to work really hard to make ends meet. And the way she did that was by always having five, six, seven, or eight schemes on the go. You know, we had a year-round garage sale on our front porch. We rescued plants from the plant nursery. I would climb in the dumpster and take the broken plants, and we'd take them home, repair them, and sort of sell them on as new plants. I mean, there were so many different things that she did. Even right now, to this day, we have a big sign out out of our front yard in Iowa, and she's got a little company called Iowa Made, making homemade pickles, jars, or jams, salsas, and all different kinds of things. And truckers stop by because she's out in the country, pretty much like honk their horn and drop $10 in the mailbox, and she puts in, I don't know, some salsa. So watching her sort of hustle definitely gave me the sort of get up and go to crack on and do my own thing from a very young age. So then you went on and did an MBA and then you had a very successful career in banking and business. Do you think taking this path was a reaction to not having the financial security when you were actually growing up? Most definitely, I think. It was fairly chaotic as a child and I often felt like there was not enough money to go around, hence all of the schemes and the hustling. And it just seemed to me that that was a slightly unpredictable way to live and that surely there was a way to have a less financially risky lifestyle. And so I really, from a young age, was quite determined to do the opposite. So I studied really hard. I put a lot lot of emphasis on the value of obtaining an excellent education and getting good grades and also getting world-class names on my CV, which gave me professional security Most definitely. That was a reaction to my upbringing. Yeah, but then you said that becoming a mother was what changed your outlook on life. I'm going to quote you here. You said, with less time, I wanted to make the time I was working really matter. Material possessions became meaningless compared to the pricelessness of my son. And so you felt the courage to break out of the corporate world after 13 years climbing the ladder. It must have taken unbelievable guts to leave this part of your life behind. Tell me how it felt at the time. Well, at the time, it felt incredibly obvious, if I'm honest, and it felt it was a huge relief. 
during my pregnancy and like early stages of maternity leave, I was really stressed out because I could not figure out for the life of me how I was going to balance multiple constraints. I didn't have a lot of support from my then husband at the time. And I also, as an expat, don't have family, hence why I went on to start a childcare business later. And so I felt very unsupported. I was in a job which required an incredible amount of travel and I couldn't do the maths. Like, how was I going to, it just, it, it didn't compute. And so it was a really big relief to sit down and to take a big step back and say, what I recognized is that if I dramatically scaled back my outgoing expenses, that I had enough savings to live for a while and to try and explore something new. That freedom that that brought me, like an extra one and a half years on a maternity leave, felt like opportunity, it felt expansive, and it felt the opposite of what I was imagining at the time was trying to go back to work and figure out how to fit all the puzzle pieces together. And so that's the last time I bought a new item of clothing, and that was 10 years ago, nine years ago. And I do buy bras and underwear new just for the avoidance of doubt but no honestly I don't buy anything else new and I've just really stopped spending money on things that I don't didn't stopped valuing and that gave me the space and freedom to explore new opportunities which ultimately has led me to Olio and now I get paid a normal salary and I have for a while so it was all worth it but that was the journey that I went on. And I think during the pandemic, I think we've all been more focused on local communities, whether it's been helping out our elderly neighbours or supporting local businesses. Do you see any of those behaviours persisting? And do you think we're going to continue now to be more collaborative? I would hope so. I think the signs are promising. Unfortunately, it's mostly anecdotal. I hear lots of people say that they're still really active in their local next door group or really active in their their WhatsApp group on the street and that there has been a sustained change in behavior. I'd be really interested to see next year probably what comes out in the wash in terms of what behaviors have been sustained. And as an optimist, I hope that the COVID pandemic has changed us for the better, for good. Yeah, I agree with you. And I certainly see that in my own behaviors with my own neighborhood and how people are continuing to help each other out, which are, you know is, is a wonderful thing, I think. Okay, so Sasha, let's fast forward 10 years. Where do you see Olio a decade from now? Which countries are you going to be operating in? And what do you hope your impact will have been? Well, we have a very publicly stated ambition to get to a billion Olioers by the end of the decade, which when we said it was 10 years in the future. Now it's only eight, which is scary. We have to mobilize so many people to change their behavior, to have the impact at scale we need to mitigate the effects of the climate crisis, which, as I'm sure everyone is aware, are very fast approaching. Olio started out as a food sharing app, but we have continued to layer in increased functionality to make hyper-local, planet-friendly living easier and, and effortless in a whole variety of ways. So as I mentioned earlier, you can give away or collect anything. It doesn't have to be food. We also have a section where people can sell handmade crafts. A lot of people during the pandemic picked up hobbies and wanted to make a bit of extra cash. And so they've been selling, whether it's homemade cupcakes or it's knitting or whatever, we found a way for people to do that through the app. And then we've recently launched a section called Borrow, which enables neighbors to lend and borrow household items. Yeah, I love the Borrow option. And I'm wondering, are there any other items that you're planning to add in here? So you've done household items. What about clothes or some other things? 
That's a good question. I can't wait till I see someone lending their wedding dress or something like that on borrowed. I think that would be fantastic. I had someone pick up an air mattress last weekend. to bar- They borrowed an air mattress. And I do think that there's massive potential to sort of reduce our collective consumption of infrequently used household items by enabling borrowing and lending amongst neighbors. But after borrow, one of the things we've been excited about for a while is enabling small businesses to offer up excess capacity or inventory, whether it's the florist the day after Valentine's that's still swimming in roses. Like there is waste that is occurring within our communities, not just in the household level, at the local business level. So how can we get let those small businesses reach new and existing customers through the app? And there's loads and loads and loads of uh, additional features that we'll be implementing in the years to come. Yeah, I'm really interested in how you view competitors. Who are they? And if sustainability is a common goal, do you see them more as collaborators? So that's a really good question. And we often say that our biggest competitor is the bin. And that, I think, probably is often the case. I think if you look at sort of secondhand marketplaces where people are trying to sell things, four out of five minimum listings on Oleo globally are requested and collected. So we have a really big marketplace clearance, which is much higher than on the paid-for marketplaces. And I have a strong suspicion that on the you know, on the paid-for marketplaces that when something doesn't sell, more often than not, it ends up getting thrown away. And what we're trying to do is to provide an alternative to throwing that thing away by letting people give it away. With regard to, we're often, I think, people confuse us with Too Good To Go, for example, and we have to let people know that we have a very different proposition and we're actually 100% complimentary. Like, most people who care about food waste would consider shopping or getting picking up food at a discount directly from a business through Too Good To Go, which is totally different than a neighbor-to-neighbor food-sharing platform. But when Too Good To Go is out there raising awareness about the problem of food waste in general, they're amplifying our message. And so I think that can be very complimentary or collaborative, as you say. But I don't think we have any direct competitor as of right now. But I'm sure we will have one soon. Okay. So do you think that Olio has an activist role as well? And what do you think government's role is in tackling food waste and sustainable living issues? I definitely think we have um, a bigger role to play going forward. And some of this Series B budget is set aside to bring in some talented people who know how to run campaigns so that we can play more of an activist role. And I do see us as an influencer right now. We are certainly big enough now where we are viewed as an influencer with regard to sustainable lifestyle brands and just sort of like the zero waste or minimalist movements. And with regard to governments, anything in the UK would be better than what they're doing right now, if I'm honest, which is pretty much nothing. It's just completely been left to voluntary initiatives by industry, which means that Things are not getting measured. The timescale lags significantly behind other countries. The hands-off, non-interventionist approach has just really meant that we are severely lagging behind Europe, even the U.S. Businesses are not required to report on the levels of waste that they have, and there's no firm or binding targets to reduce that waste. So let me just pick up on that. So for the business leaders listening, what are three things that they should all be doing to reduce the impact that they have on the planet? I mean, I think most importantly, we need top-down leadership with aggressive, publicly declared targets to not just achieve net zero, carbon offsetting can only get us so far, but to get to net zero or to decarbonize, et cetera. But we need aggressive targets and they need to come from the top down and then you need to reorient your 
entire company's strategy around measuring and reporting your progress against those targets and free up the budget and devote the talent to ensure that the teams that need to have the authority and the resource to do what they need to do to meet those targets. What we see a lot of is half-baked targets that not only aren't aggressive, but then there's no follow-up. And when we talk to people internally, they're not really sure who's in charge of that project. And it clearly hasn't infiltrated throughout the organization as a strategic priority. I mean, honestly, I think what Tesco has done with regard to their public target to get to edible food waste is is not only heroic, but other businesses could learn a lot from it. And lastly, we've got huge challenges ahead with the climate crisis. What keeps you optimistic? Well, I'm an optimist by nature, so things don't get me down for too long. But I think what keeps me optimistic is that I really believe in, I guess, the power of individual action. And I believe that human beings are are good, pretty much, for the most part. And that if we can unlock that goodness in each of us at scale, that our collective small actions can lead to quite transformational transformational change, especially because a very large part of climate emissions, 60%, are directly related to consumption choices we make within our home. So that really brings me to the power of the individual, my faith in humans to do the right thing for the most part. That's what gives me hope. Oh, a huge thank you for your time and insight today, Sasha. It has been just brilliant to hear the community that you've built with Olio and also the experiences that you've brought here. I am incredibly excited about your vision of the future and also the impact that you're going to have on the planet. To our listeners, if you'd like to hear more from Facebook IQ, please sign up for our newsletter at fb.me forward slash FBIQ newsletter or click the link in the show notes. Until next time. 